Welcome to the Commodity Culture Podcast, where we interview prominent investors in the commodity space to give you the inside scoop on the emerging commodity super cycle. And now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Commodity Culture, where we break down the commodity space for both new and experienced investors. My name is Jesse Day. Before we get started, standard disclaimer, nothing here is investing advice. Do your own due diligence. And today's guest is the author of The Endgame Investor, a gold-based approach to protecting wealth and profiting off Fed inflation. It's Rafi Farber. Great to have you back on. Great to be here, Jesse. I'm glad to join your culture of commodities. Yes, and we're very happy to have you every time you do come on. So I want to start with the reverse repo market. This seems very confusing. So could you break it down for us and how it affects the banking sector and also the issues it is currently causing and why the Bank Policy Institute has called it a black hole for bank deposits? Well, I don't have a degree in reverse repos. I don't think the academic system has come up with that yet. And these things are new. They've only really existed in any, in any, uh, good amount, uh, since the, uh, 2020, uh, lockdown printing and a little bit in 2014 to 2018, uh, you know, a little bit by today's standards. But now there's like 2.3, 2.4 trillion dollars of this extra money. So basically, basically what it was, is that the the Fed printed so much money in 2020 and 2021 that the the banks couldn't handle it all because it costs money for them to have dollars on their balance sheet because they have to administer that. So instead of of holding all this cash, um, earning them the banks no interest and the, the cash didn't belong to anyone, um, it was just you know given to them by the Fed. So it's not in somebody's personal deposit account is what I'm saying. They didn't have anywhere to put it. So the Fed said, okay, give it back to us and uh, we'll give you uh, interest on it uh, for the securities that we give you in exchange for the cash. And the idea was they needed to control interest rates. So they needed to uh, they needed to put this money somewhere so it wouldn't flood into the bank system and push uh, interest rates way back down uh, when they're trying to keep the, the overnight rate at like whatever it was, two, three, four percent. So they had to take this money out of the system. Uh, and now there's a 2.3 trillion dollars of it. And if you look at where this stuff actually is, it's all in money, basically all of it, 90, 95% of it is in money market funds. And money market funds, uh, you might not think that you're invested in them, but if you have a brokerage account and you have extra cash in your brokerage account, you are. Uh, most of the time invested in money market funds and your brokerage will pay you interest on the cash that you have in your brokerage account because they put it in money market funds, which basically means now they're, they're putting it in the reverse repos and getting interest from the Fed. So, <coughs> excuse me, when you have extra cash in your brokerage, it's going into reverse repos and you're getting, you're getting, uh, interest on that. So that, that sounds fine. Like, yay, interest on cash on brokerage accounts. So fine. Um, however, there is, uh, the, the consequence of that is that you will, and you might have seen this already, I've seen it in my email box, uh, that you will get an email from your brokerage saying, please take the money out of your deposit accounts at your local bank and put it with us because your bank can't pay you interest on your deposits and we can, ha ha ha. And you're like, wow, great. I'm going to pull, put the money in brokerage account in my boat and, and I'm going to get, you know, interest on it. But, uh, what happens to the banks that you take your deposits out of? Uh, they lose deposits, which is, 
which is a contributing factor. I'm not going to say it was the reason. I don't know exactly all the reasons that SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, failed, but that was definitely one of them, uh, maybe a big one of them. Uh, and now other other regional banks are are having problems with their deposits because they don't they don't access the reverse repos, right? They don't have any of that. All the reverse repos are are managed by the commercial banks, the big money centers, and they own these money market funds, so they they're fine. You know that's why we're seeing J, like J P Morgan, their earnings go crazy and their stock is going up, and the regional banks are crashing, and this is what's happening. So what's happening is a huge centralization of the of the banking system. And now what what the what did you say the Bank Policy Institute? I, I lose track of what all these names are, but the Bank Policy Institute, which is like they're in charge of bank policy because they're really important, whoever they are. I never heard of this institution like outside of a few weeks ago. I didn't even know there was a policy for bank, but an institute for bank policy or, or there's hundreds of them. I don't know. But they said it makes sense. Like if you're going to incentivize people to take money out of deposit accounts and put into money market accounts, well, banks are going to lose money. Okay. And that's crashing the banking system. So their, their advice is why don't you just take these $2.3 trillion and put it back in the banking system? That should be fine. And then the Fed, and then <laughs> this is ridiculous. And then Fed officials, the trial balloon people, are like, "Yeah, we could do that. We could like take two point three trillion dollars out of reverse repos and put it back in the bank system. That shouldn't do any problems. It should be fine." Um, and so, that, like, two things would happen: like all the the money market funds that are invested in reverse repos, but like your brokerage sends you an email that says, "Oh, you're not earning interest on this money market anymore. We're sorry." And then everyone says, "Oh my god." So I'll take the money out of the money market funds and then they all get these redemption requests at the same time and then it crashes the money market system and then people who thought they had cash in their brokerage accounts, so suddenly they don't have cash in their brokerage accounts because like, oh, the money market fund broke. Now, I'm not saying that's definitely what happened, but it seems pretty plausible that it could happen. And then uh, and then all of a sudden all this money or what it can be redeemed from money market funds because the rest will be lost – uh, they'll it'll go back into the into the banking system, and all of a sudden there will be like two trillion dollars more in the banking system, which you know sounds great. Uh, that should that should do fine for prices and whatever. I, I I don't even know what would happen. We're talking about such gargantuan sums here, and this whole this whole debate is ridiculous, and nobody in the top echelon seems to know what they're even talking about, and it's the ignorance is scary. Yeah, well, that was actually an awesome breakdown, and it's crazy to see so many of these cracks appear in the system. Um, and I, I want to touch on a recent video you did on your YouTube channel where you mentioned that the U.S. dollar is not going to die on international trade deals. It's going to die in the streets of the U.S. Could you expand on that concept for us? Yeah, so this is more of a logical point, and I get some flack for this because um, these news stories of uh, the dollar, uh, of different countries looking to bypass the dollar in international trade and gold bugs get really excited – and again, I don't want to say that it's it's worthless news or that it's not significant in any way. It is, and I'm not ignoring it. Um, but <clears throat> what what is happening logically in 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 a pyramidal monetary structure like we have now is that <clears throat> let's say when China and Brazil make a deal over gas, or was it France and Brazil, or whatever, it doesn't matter what country and whatever currency. <coughs> excuse me. When they um. One country says, okay, we're going to use the yuan to buy gas instead of dollars. So what do they do? Um, they What they're doing is they're using the yuan to settle a dollars-nominated trade. It's like – it's just a – it's a nominal difference. Uh, it's still a dollar deal just settled in yuan. And then what happens to those yuan? They're eventually exchanged for dollars. So if whoever the yuan is going to can make another dollar deal. 
you know, but it's not that they, this is unavoidable in international trade because the international trade system is based on the dollar because of the perimeter structure that's left over from Bretton Woods, right? When, when Bretton Woods had content and dollars were redeemable for gold, the, the, the idea was, um, so that, you know, the United States could siphon the wealth from other countries. Um, they would, they would encourage other countries to hold dollars instead of gold. Uh, and, you know, their, their reasoning was like, oh, well, if you hold gold, it could get stolen if Germany invades again or whatever, another world war breaks out. Remember, this is right post World War II. And uh, America just saved the world or whatever the narrative was. Uh, so they're like, okay, so instead of holding gold, hold dollars, we'll hold your gold and then we'll redeem it. If you have $35, we'll give you an ounce of your gold back. Um, so don't worry about it. Just trust our currency. And then Nixon, like there was a pyramid, it was gold in it. And then Nixon hollowed out the gold and left the pyramid structure. So in the pyramid structure that's empty and hollow now, um, the dollar is still the base of it. So there's no escaping that. What, what will, the only way that a country can truly get around the dollar is not by going above it in the layer, in the pyramidal layer. That doesn't make sense because the upper layers of the pyramid are supported by the lower layers by definition, or else they'd be floating in the air and they just, or they'd fall over. So the only way you can go beyond the dollar is to get underneath the damn dollar, not above it. And the only thing that's underneath the dollar is gold and silver. So if you have two countries that are trading goods denominated in gold and silver in ounces, they're not making a dollar deal. They're not, they're not saying, they're not saying like, I'm going to buy a hundred million dollars of ag gas for you in, denominated in gold. That would still be a dollar trade, even with gold. What they would have to say is I'm buying a hundred ounces worth of gold, hundred ounces worth of gas from you, country B. That would be getting around the dollar. And they're never going to do that until they have to. Until the dollar collapses, they're not going to do that. And when will the dollar collapse? When it's attacked at home by the Americans in the street. And therefore, from that core, they will not be able to do any more dollar deals because nobody will want them. Yeah. Wow. Excellent breakdown once again. So I wonder if you think the recent performance of gold and silver is directly related to the collapse of the SVB bank, causing people to flee to precious metals. You know, Signature Bank collapsed. A few of the other ones did as well, a crypto-focused bank. But I'm wondering if you think that some people realize that their money isn't as safe as they thought it was, and they fled to a safe haven asset. Or is it more complicated than that? I don't think it's that simple. Um, when I get these sorts of questions, um, and I've, I've been following gold prices for long enough to see that they don't, they never make sense in the short term or even, even the medium term, right? Um, so it, it's always tempting to build a story about short or medium term movements in gold and say, well, this happened. So therefore why happened? And sometimes it's true, right? But it's more often not true. <laughs> so it could, it could be that people are looking, for a safe haven, so they escaped uh, dollars and went to gold. And you'll definitely hear that among the gold bugs. But the problem is, and we have to recognize this, that everyone lives in their own echo chamber, including ourselves. Like, uh, we, we were focused on the gold industry, we're focused on commodities, so that's what we hear. And we, we follow people who agree with us and they say certain things. And we generally try to stay away from people that disagree with us and we don't hear what they're saying. And much of what the other side is saying is probably false. But they're probably also, you know, saying some truth that we miss because we don't want to hear it. Uh, and, you know, but look, like I'm part of the echo chamber also, but I have to realize that. And, and so my answer is like, I don't know why gold is moving exactly why it's moving now. Um, I just know that inevitably it's going to head there. 
it's going to head up and up and up because that's that's history. Now the question is how why so why am I so focused now and saying that and and saying that it's going to head to you know fifty percent backing of the of the dollar, hundred percent backing of the dollar, which would be like fifty sixty thousand dollars an ounce eventually. Why am I saying that now? Um, well, because you have these like massive gargantuan piles of money in different pockets everywhere. We just talked about reverse repos, but there's other things. There's there's all the 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 foreign holdings of of treasury bonds, and there's uh, there's you know the banking crisis again that you just talked about, and it feels to me that one more financial crisis, uh, the Fed's going to have to print like ten twenty trillion dollars just to touch the exponential curve of of the debt pyramid, right? It has to go in an exponential curve because the more people that are in debt, uh, the more the more debt they need to raise in order to stay in business and to stay servicing their debt costs. So you ha- it, it's an exponential curve that just feeds itself and we're already going vertical. So it seems to be that one more one more crisis is going to do it. Exactly when this is going to be triggered, I don't know, but it seems like, you know, first parts of it already have been and we're just waiting for like a big flood or the, you know, the big bulk of it to like reveal itself and that could happen anytime now. So uh get ready and don't worry about short-term movements right now. It's not important. That's the that should be the point. You mentioned recently that you think we're done with the interest rate hiking cycle and you don't think we'll ever see another interest rate hike again in this monetary system. Um, now, there are those who believe that there will be a, a bit more hiking, those who think the Fed is going to pause, and then those who think that they're going to have to cut eventually. So how, how do you see things playing out from here? And, and why do you say we'll never see another interest rate hike again in this monetary system? Um, well... Because this, you know, follows from what I was saying before that we're one crisis away from the end of this monetary system. Um, <clears throat> meaning, there's uh, we we saw the collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. We're seeing the collapse of other regional banks. The stocks are not recovering, um, and it makes sense why because interest rates are sucking money out of the banking system. So we know that. And what happens when when these regional banks fail? They're going to have to be bailed out, and the Fed is going to have to start printing again and and cutting and cutting interest rates probably back down right to zero in the midst of of you know consumer price inflation that's still at six seven percent annual uh, by their heuristics. I'm not giving any scientific validity to those measurements. It's not like you know I, I take that as gospel or anything. Um, so the next cut is going is going to be uh, around six to seven percent. CPI inflation because I think the CPI has bottomed. It looks to me that way because of inflation expectations and um, other little indicators. But I, I think the CPI is not going any more down. That's it. This is the bottom. We're headed back up in consumer prices, and we're headed back up into an environment where the Fed's going to have to cut to zero in order to save a bunch of banks. Um, so if you have that that combination where the Fed has to cut to zero and restart QE in an environment where consumer prices are already rising furiously, um, even at this, you know, this temporary trough in CPI, um, you're going to be in an environment where it's going to click and, uh, and, and the public is going to start to recognize that this is never going to end and they've got to get out of dollars, uh, or lose all of their savings. And, um, some, you know, the smart, the smart people are going into gold and silver. Now the people that, uh, are not aware of this because most people are not, uh, they're just going to buy whatever they can get their hands on 
when, uh, when they realize that they need to. And that'll be whatever they can find first. Gold, silver, food, uh, furniture, whatever. You know, that, that's the hyperinflationary point. So uh, that's what I see next. And when it happens, I think it's going to happen very quickly. Um, and uh, well, I think we're very close. Fortunately or unfortunately, depends how you look at it. I see it as fortunately because I want this to end. Um, and I see it as inevitable and it just, just let's get it over with already and peel off the Band-Aid. And uh, unfortunately, for those who have no idea what's going on and they'll only find out at the last second. Yeah, so talk to us about the disconnect between economic data and market sentiment, because the S&P and especially the NASDAQ has been performing very well this year, despite a number of alarming economic indicators, such as several things you've already mentioned during this interview. So is it just that people are too used to the era of near zero interest rates and they're holding on to a fading dream that there's going to be another bull market, good times are here again, or what, what, what's your take there? I have a pretty simple answer to this question, um, that uh, there's still a lot of extra money out there that funds and, and hedge funds and whoever manages money, the big players that really move prices, they got to put it somewhere. Uh, so they're putting it where their algorithms say to put it. And uh, there's still a whole bunch of hangover money from the, the lockdown printing era. And um, it's got to go somewhere. So uh, that's where it's going. I mean, I, I don't really subscribe to the view that the stock market and the economic news are related in any tight correlative way. I mean, eventually, yeah, eventually economic news is going to push stocks down because people are going to realize that, you know, everything is falling apart and uh, and – you know, stocks are, even if they're going up in value, they're going down in value because inflation is going faster and they've got to go into real assets and uh, that's going to happen all at once. So what it, what stock, what stocks are doing, I mean, even you could even say like you're arguing that stocks are rising, but like since 2022, since they stopped printing money, uh, you know, printing more money, they haven't gone up. They haven't even gone close to a higher high and they're down. Uh, so this is, this, this looks to me like the extra sideline money is just being sucked in and, um, we should stop paying attention to like these short-term waves and trends and, you know, things will go up and down until they fall. And, uh, that's where we're going. So I'm wondering if you have any opinion or if you've looked into this IMF, this CBDC type of crypto, I don't even know what it is. They call it the Unicoin, which is so ridiculous, just on its face. I don't know who came up with that, what marketing team came up with that. But they call it a digital cash store of value innovation, which sounds like they asked like chat GPT to just throw a bunch of buzzwords together that the, the crypto kids are, are hip to. So I'm just wondering, this thing seems like a joke, but is this serious? Is anyone going to use this thing? And, and how do you think they're going to try to push this technology? And what is their end goal here? I don't know much about this and I'm not a crypto guy and I don't have a technical mind like that, but I have a, I have a logical mind. I can understand logical constructs. That's, that's my strength. So in terms of how it works, I have no idea, but what they seem, what it seems to want to do is to put an AI system in charge of the monetary policy of this crypto, which would act like the FOMC board of this cryptocurrency and adjust things to keep prices stable in terms of something. The question is like, you know, going back to the pyramid and, and the Misesian regression principle that any new currency has to be based on the price array of the immediate past or else it's not a thing. 
doesn't work <clears throat> because then the prices are meaningless. Um, <clears throat> so they have, let's say, a, a hyper-intelligent robot with a huge brain that's in charge of the monetary policy of Unicoin uh, to keep it stable in, it looks like, again, dollar terms because what in what other terms are you going to keep it stable? That, that So it's just a substitute for the dollar again. It's just another way that they can control they can control the dollar flows. And and the, the funny thing is, like this goes back to the reverse repo point where the Fed didn't realize that stuffing $2.3 trillion in reverse repo would suck money out of deposits. <clears throat> the selling point of the Unicoin, I, I believe, is that um that it uh it takes away the need for corresponding banks to be uh involved in international transfers. Uh, because then you have the AI system managing it and matching buy and sell orders by itself. You don't need banks to like be the money market makers in this market. Uh, so if they cut out the banks, then they cut out the profit for those banks and the banks can't make money doing international transfers. So they collapse again because this is where a lot of their income comes from. And then they destroy the banking system, even if this thing succeeds. And therefore, when they destroy the banking system, the money supply collapses. They have to print a bunch of money, uh, you know, to keep the financial system going. And then the, the, it just, it amplifies the problem just on another layer of the pyramid. Like now we have, let's say we have the problem at level three of the pyramid and all the Michigas and craziness going on there. So the CBDC, the, the unicorn will like just make the problem more evident on a higher level of the pyramid and much worse. Like the, there's no escaping the base. The base is always gold and silver. The, the, the CBDC or the unicorn cannot defy gravity because everything falls and everything falls to the ground and the ground base of the financial pyramid of all of society from the beginning of monetary times is gold and silver. And there's no escaping that just like there's no escaping our own mortality. Very well put. Now, what's your take on these 15 minute cities that are being planned? I really wanted to get your opinion on this because they've got some of them lined up in the UK. Canada's talking about doing it. Um, People are saying the agenda behind them is is sinister. They're going to try to lock people into a small area that it's connected to like tracking one's carbon footprint so that they're going to say, well, if you stay within this city, you won't use any of your carbon points up, you know, when they eventually introduce potential CBDC, social credit score, stuff like that. And if you want to leave, that's fine. But apparently they're even engineering some of these places to make it more difficult to travel outside by car, to, to make it take more time, to make it more inconvenient. And of course, in the name of combating climate change, reducing people's carbon footprint. So what's your take there? Are people blowing this out of proportion or is this actually a threat to people's freedoms? Um, well, this, this relates to CBDC. Like theoretically, is CBDC, if it were to be enforced and, and to work, would it, would it uh, you know, destroy our freedoms? Absolutely. It would destroy humanity. And am I particularly worried about it? No, because um, because the system is so inherently unstable as it is already that the next layer of it, the next layer of tyranny, cannot uh, uh, can't be sustained for long. Like each 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 level of tyranny, no matter what kind of tyranny you're talking about, just people bossing other people around and killing them, or however you want to describe it, rests on the stability of the previous generations. Right? It it sucks off the productivity of 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 the past. And there's only so much you can there's only so much you can steal before everything is hollowed out and everything collapses. So yeah, are they building 15 minute cities? Yeah, are they going to say it's amazing and it's going to help everyone? And it's going to free us? Yeah, they're going to say all the great things, safe and effective, or whatever. Uh, is it really trying to enslave us? Yeah, it is. Uh, if 15 minute cities existed, would we be enslaved colonies and concentration camps? 
you know, uh, Lahavdil, uh, sorry, Jewishism, but uh, not exactly concentration camps, but the same kind of idea of herding people into into areas for whatever purposes you want. Uh, yeah, they're trying all that. And eventually, would it lead to the mass slaughter of humanity? Yeah, sure it would. But is it going to last long enough for that to happen? No, it's not. Uh, you don't have to worry about it. So, you know, they'll build all these, all these like amenities for you to stay within your 15 minute range and then they'll run out of money and then you'll have amenities closer to you and then we'll be in a new society and everything will be fine after a period of intense problems and 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 war and instability but we have to get through that we're not it's not going to be the case where they're going to find an island of stability in maximum tyranny where we become slaves forever that's what you know the 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 liberty people are worried about but i'm not worried about it because it's impossible <laughs> It, they can't. You can't do this. It's, it, so, um, and from a religious standpoint, you could say God won't allow it. But you know, the world operates through logical rules that God set up, and one of them is that you can't keep stealing things that don't exist because you run out of stuff. Yeah, I like that light at the end of the tunnel view of things because you're right. The, a lot of the libertarian and and sound money. Uh, you know, gold and silver bug chatter that goes on online. People are literally terrified of this and they're saying the future is going to be grim. This is what's going to happen. They're going to make everybody slaves as you're alluding to. But, um, I like that you're looking through it at a lens, a lens of logic and, and kind of picking it apart in that way instead of going straight to the doom and gloom side of things. Um, and I, I do want to switch to, um, the issue of mass compliance and, you know, which was kind of scary what we saw during the pandemic. You, you you often wear a shirt that says, I will not comply. And anyone who follows you on Twitter knows your stance on government coercion, a stance I obviously share when I left Canada um, to come here to the Balkans. It seems that gold and silver bugs almost universally saw the incredible overreach implemented during the pandemic as a clear violation of civil liberties. And those with no understanding of sound money, it felt like to me were more easily duped. So do you think there's some sort of connection there? Um, and and do those that believe in sound money, is it just easier for, for us to see the charade, not to like toot our own horns or say we're, we're special, but it, is there some sort of connection between those two? Let's put it this way. Um, people, the gold and silver people, um, at least I'll just tell my story, like how, how I came to it, like there were certain things that made me very uncomfortable with how the economic system supposedly worked that, you know, I kind of like said, I don't like that. And I tucked it away. And I said, I'll solve it later because I don't really know now. And the, f the first really, uh, is second, the second really salient, uh, the first two. Okay. So I tell this story a lot when I found a, a, a thousand shekel bill in my father's office drawer, uh, an old shekel bill with Maimonides on it. And I, I thought it was a thousand shekels. And I knew what a shekel was. It was like about three shekels to a dollar at the time I found it. And I'm like, like, ah, oh, you have a thousand shekels in your drawer. He's like, oh no, that's the old shekel. It hyperinflated to zero and now it's worthless. So I'm like, so, so like, but money always inflates and prices are always going higher. He's like, yeah, but that's how an economy grows. I'm like, what? This, you just said it died, but now it is growing. You What? I didn't get it. I was like, okay, whatever. I don't understand. I'm I'm like a little kid. And then the second the second thing I never I didn't get was like in economics class in high school. Um, <clears throat> they were talking about uh, how gold how the dollar used to be gold, and uh, and then and then 
and but now it's just fiat. And I was like, what's fiat? She's like, well, it just has value because the government says it does. I'm like, well, what if people don't believe the government? Like, how does that sustain us? It was like, what? I was like, okay, I'll put that. I'll just put that on the test. Like, okay, fiat means government says that. But like, what the hell is this? And that, so then when when you hear, like when you see that the other problems, and then you go back to the foundation, you find out that it's empty. It's like, okay, you got to go in the other direction and fill it with some content that isn't part of this system because the whole base of it is emptiness, literally. Uh, so the gold and silver people, it's not like we go into this into this like community because we want glory and power. And I mean, we're just, we're laughing. We're, we're the laughing stock of everybody. And we've been for many years, but we don't care because we know it's true. But it's the same thing with, with the, the people who research um, the foundations of medical. And I don't want to use the wrong keywords here, but like, like the foundations of, of the medical establishment, whatever they may be, you will find out if you look deep enough into them that their foundation is also empty. So the people that understand that the monetary foundation is empty will be more likely to listen when somebody says that the medical establishment foundation is also empty and based on structures that look nice but have no content. And uh, we're not afraid to say that everybody is wrong and everybody believes in the same nonsense. Uh, so th that's the connection. We're not afraid because we follow the we f we we allow the lack of comfort in our souls to blossom and tell us something different and don't hide away from it. So is all this authoritarian overreach that has been occurring, you know, uh, particularly became apparent during the pandemic, but I think it's been ramping up for, for a little while now. Is this a sign that the legacy system is dying, that it's like a wounded animal, it's cornered, and it's lashing out for survival? Um, and if, you know, you, you spoke about how you think the other side of this, after we go through some pain, is going to be a better system. So do you think there's also a risk of the other side of this, just having everybody being misled again, and, and having this kind of cycle of, I don't know what you want to call it, totalitarianism, uh, continue and, and continue to grow in the Western world? Or will it be kind of a return to sound money that restores sanity and creates a better society? Um, I guess you could, you could couch that question in other terms. Like how the question you're basically asking is how big is the disaster going to be until we all come back to our senses? And the truth is, I don't know the answer to that question. Um, uh, I mean, I could tell you in, in World War II, uh, in that collapse of society after that, that resulted from, you know, uh, a printing of money in the 1920s all over the world and ended up in people not knowing what to do. So they, they went to a whole bunch of dictators, which includes Stalin and Hitler and FDR, all of them. I put it, I'm putting them on the same peg here because I, you know, I'm sacrilegious. Uh, they're, they're all the same to different degrees. I mean, don't forget that FDR also put a whole bunch of people in camps. He just didn't murder them straight out like Stalin and Hitler did. And, uh, but they were basically doing the same thing and stealing gold. I mean, FDR stole all the gold in America. Hitler stole all the gold in, they're all doing the same stuff in different degrees. So we view one of them as a hero and the other as a villain, but they're all villains of different degrees is the reality of this thing. Um, you know, there's another instance of, uh, empty, Empty history in the standard World War II story. Um, so how 
the so what I would say is the more gold and silver that we buy or that we exchange for money substitutes, uh, what enabled Hitler to go crazy and kill so many people was that he had a lot of money because he was able to steal a lot of it. And what enabled FDR to start Social Security and all his tyranny that he did in the 1930s with the New Deal. And no, the New Deal is not as bad as what Hitler did. So don't I'm not saying that, <laughs> okay? Um, but it was the same centralizing of power for different reasons, for different ends. Um, they, they all stole a bunch of money and then killed a bunch of people. Basically what they did. So we need to get the money away from them. The people that, that have the weapons, we don't want them to have the money too. We want the money. So, so we, we, need, we need to get that so that we can be in control of the world after they run out of it. Uh, so that's what I advise we do. We don't, we don't want the bad people to have the money. We want the good people to have the money. So the good people should buy the money now before the bad people have it all. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great note to end things on, Rafi. Um, before I let you go, for those who want to learn more, could you fill us in on what the Endgame Investor is all about and also anywhere else you want to direct people online? Um, yeah, I could describe the Endgame Investor in, in different ways, but I would say that, yeah, we all have a, a, a gut feeling deep in our souls that fake money is is bad and real money is good. And so I give a philosophical and trading foundation to no matter what is happening day to day in the gold and silver markets, which I go into and I go into the Austrian um, conceptions of these markets, Austrian economics uh, conceptions. Uh, that's how I try to frame things. But once you understand the logical foundation that gold is literally money right now and everything that we use as money substitutes only have value because they are still exchangeable for gold – then, you know, when you take a portion of your income and you put it away in metals or metal stocks uh, or many other speculative vehicles, which I also deal with, you're philosophically okay with that because you understand the reality of it. And that's what I try to instill in people um, uh, and give them some emotional stability in what's going to be a crazy time um, ahead. So uh, if you believe in that, then uh, I can help give you a, a base uh, and, and a, a rock solid or a gold solid understanding of what money is. And uh, I, I anticipate that after this is done, I'll probably retire and uh, move on to something else. But until then, uh, you can sign up at the Endgame Investor. Uh, just put it into any search engine and uh, I write about four times a week. Um, and I do other things too. I do um, biblical commentary into these uh, areas where I give a once a week video to my patrons on Patreon, you know, pa uh, patreon.com slash Investor. Or my YouTube channel at Rafi Farber, which is copied on Odyssey if you don't like YouTube, and I don't like YouTube either. Um, and Twitter, you can follow me at Rafi Farber. Okay, great. Well, I'll put links to all those in the description below so people can check that out. Thank you so much once again for joining us. It's always a lot of fun when you come on and looking forward to continuing the conversation sometime in the future. Thank you. Commodity Culture is a podcast that covers investing in commodities and natural resources. If you'd like to hear more, be sure to subscribe so you are always alerted of the latest episodes.